Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming out so early. At least it's not as early as our talk yesterday. That was at <laughs> 7. Um, disclosures, we're both consultants for Axial Healthcare. I've received some honoraria from a drug company listed there. We are federal government employees. We are not here representing the federal government, their opinions, and not on federal government time. And it's definitely now the weekend, so we're for sure <laughs> good. Our learning objectives talk about the proposed mechanism of action for gabapentin and pregabalin. Talked about the proposed rationale as why these medications are now thought to be becoming drugs of abuse. Talk about signs and symptoms of withdrawal um, and how to mitigate that. And then talk about maybe some changes and updates that are happening um, given these concerns. So here we are. Um, rising concerns with the prescription prescribing of opioids, turning to non-opioid, non-pharmacological methods to help relieve patients' pain. Um, there's some new data suggesting um, when opioids are involved that there's an increased risk for overdose. Um, we're hearing more and more about gabapentinoid abuse. And then there's some changes that are occurring at some state levels with prescription drug monitoring programs and even some states altering scheduling of gabapentin. So this is kind of like an overview of kind of where we're headed today. First, we wanted to talk a little bit just about gabapentinoids in general. Um, one of my favorite questions when I'm working with trainees, pharmacy students, I always like to ask them, how does gabapentin or pregabalin work? How do our gabapentinoids work? I always secretly hope that they fall for the fact that they have GABA in their name. Maybe I'm a little mean, um, but um, they, don't, they don't do anything with GABA, so that's not true. They're, they're structurally related to GABA and have GABA mimetic properties, but they don't alter the uptake, the breakdown, bind to, or convert into GABA. So it's somewhat of a misnomer. They do bind to the alpha-2 delta subunit of the voltage-gated calcium channel. And this ultimately reduces the release of pro-nociceptive neurotransmitters like dopamine, or I'm sorry, glutamate, norepinephrine, and substance P. Want to be cognizant because um, a lot of times, you know, there's what five different gabapentinoids now on the market. So I want to make sure that um, talk about the class in general, but talk a little bit about some of their specific FDA-approved indications. Pregabalin has the most with um, neuropathic pain associated with spinal cord injury. All of them are labeled, I believe, for post-herpatic neuralgia, um, seizures, fibromyalgia, and diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Interesting, gabapentin, the only pain-related indication that it carries is post-herpatic neuralgia. Um, and then we have the gabapentin inacrabil, and that is labeled for post-herpatic neuralgia and restless legs. Um, the other gabapentin product is labeled for post-herpatic neuralgia. And then now there's a controlled release formulation of pregabalin for post-herpatic neuralgia and diabetic neuropathic pain. So what are their roles in pain? Um, there's uh, quite a few different neuropathic pain guidelines, and many of them list gabapentinoids as first-line options for neuropathic pain. Um, interesting, I always like the American Academy um, the American Diabetes Association, their guidelines, because they only go for the ones that are labeled for diabetic neuropathy. Um, but in general, first-line first options for neuropathic pain. But where else do they fit in? Sorry that this, well, it's easier for you all to see than it is for me to see. 
Um, multimodal postoperative pain management um, has been shown to reduce pain scores, opioid doses, side effects related to opioids as well. Um, but there is some controversy related to the timing and dosing of giving gabapentinoids around surgery. Now, for acute or chronic sciatica, there was a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine showing no benefit with that medication. And then there have been some reviews done looking at nonspecific low back pain. And again, that's where we fall short that they're not found to be effective and may contribute to side effects. Off-label, there are lots and lots of different uses of why people use gabapentinoids. Um, so there's multiple mental health conditions that people target using gabapentinoids, um, anxiety, um, ADHD, maybe as a migraine prophylactic. And then one of my favorites um, that we'll get to in a little bit is that there is some evidence that gabapentin um, reduces alcohol cravings. Not as good as some of the other medications that are out there, um, but I find that interesting, especially since today we're talking about abuse of, of gabapentin, and you'll find out that most commonly people who abuse and misuse gabapentinoids have other substance use disorders, so interesting. We do know that rates of gabapentinoid prescribing have increased quite a bit over the last few years. Um, there was a study looking at about 350,000 patients um, that were prescribed gabapentin or pregabalin between 2002 and 2015. 82% um, of these patients got gabapentin, and there was just a significant rise in this time frame of patients receiving these medications. Um, in 2002, it was only 1.2% um, were given a gabapentinoid, where it was more closer to 4%. Um, in 2015. Now here in 2016, it's the 10th most commonly prescribed medication in the US, gabapentin that is, and there were 64 million prescriptions. I would guess to say pretty much everyone in this room has probably written at least one gabapentin prescription, um, probably many, many more than that. Um, for pregabalin, it's the eighth and it invoiced drug spending with sales of about $4.4 billion. Last year, there was a case control study that was released looking at the odds of overdose when a patient was prescribed gabapentin. So this was a population-based nested case control study with about 1,200 cases matched to roughly 4,700 controls. And the primary exposure was having gabapentin 120 days before the index date of a death of having an opioid-related death. 12% of cases and 7% of controls were prescribed gabapentin. And the odds of having an opioid-related cause of death increased roughly 50% if they were prescribed gabapentin with an opioid. High doses were associated with higher odds of having an opioid-related cause. Very high doses were associated with higher doses. And so it's something to think about. This is just a case control study. Um, but it, is, it gives us thought, because how often are we prescribing opioids with gabapentin? We're often adding gabapentinoids to help maybe reduce patients' opioid doses. And then last week, 
There was similar data released related to pregabalin with a similar methodology um, and, and again showing that higher doses of pregabalin were associated with higher odds of having an opioid-related death. So just to talk a little bit about dosing, typically with just gabapentin, starting off um, at lower doses, titrating slowly to avoid risk of side effect. Um, a lot of times I'll have patients complain of side effects and I'll ask them, how did you start the medication? Oh, I took 300 milligrams three times a day. Okay, let's try, try and back off and start um, at lower doses and see if we can mitigate some of those side effects. One of the big things that that's applicable to gabapentins across the board is that they do require renal dose adjustments. I often have patients are very concerned about medications causing harm to their kidneys, and gabapentinoids aren't gonna do that. But they do get cleared by our kidneys, so if our kidneys aren't working as well, we're gonna have to lower the dose because then they're at increased risk of having side effects. So I find that's often an intervention I make is taking a look at their renal function and adjusting the dose accordingly. As the renal function declines with just gabapentin, then you'll start reducing the total daily dose and there'll be um, extended time between, instead of doing TID, then you'll go to BID and then eventually daily. And then of note, there are also supplemental doses with hemodialysis on days of hemodialysis, but you could just take the gabapentin after dialysis and avoid that issue. Pregabalin, um, I think one thing to note here is that there is some differences in dosing depending on the indication that you're using the, the medication for. It can be titrated, um, typically 450 milligrams. There's not much data saying that exceeding those doses provides much additional benefit to the patient um, and may increase the risk for having side effects. Have I increased beyond those doses? Yes, I have. Um, but it's something to consider that it may increase patients' risk for having side effects. And now we're having, um, we have some new data as well. Same thing here. Um, renal dose adjustments are needed at 60 mil, below 60 milliliters per minute. Wanted to make sure that I gave um, some attention and time to some of the other gabapentinoid products. Um, you can see that very similarly that they require dose titrations um, over time to increase the dose, um, have different maximum doses, and you can see that they do vary on the frequency. Um, the first one there on, the, on your left goes up to um, twice daily dosing, um, and then the one in the middle we have just once daily. Same thing with pregabalin CR. So I did wanna make a note here specifically that I'm specifically talking about just gabapentin um, and pregabalin. Um, they do have, between these two products, some differences in their kinetics, and some of the newer gabapentin products avoid some of the issues with, the issues with kinetics that we see in gabapentin. So the gabapentin product has nonlinear kinetics. As you increase the dose, it's not a straight line. Um, there's a slower onset with gabapentin in comparison to pregabalin, lower affinity for the receptor that it binds to, and lower overall bioavailability. But this, again, is just talking about gabapentin 
and I do try and avoid brand names, but Neurontin. Um, and some of the newer products do have um, all differences in pharmacokinetics and are not considered, can't interchange between gabapentin and those other products. Now, comparing gabapentin to pregabalin, it has a much higher bioavailability, linear kinetics, faster onset, and higher affinity for the receptor. So there is some data out there looking at the conversion of gabapentin, neurontin, to pregabalin. And here's an, here's an example case of a patient with diabetic neuropathy. Um, they have a creatinine clearance of 43 milliliters per minute, and we find that they've had a side effect with amitriptyline. You can't do an SNRI in this patient um, because he has uncontrolled hypertension, and he has had reduced pain and function with gabapentin 600 twice a day. Um, so, of course, like any good patient, they, they watch, watch TV and they see a commercial for pregabalin, and they want to give it a try. So how might you switch that patient over? So again, this is just applicable to gabapentin to pregabalin, but it's thought that pregabalin is about six times as potent as gabapentin. And so there's two different ways that you can switch between them. Reduce gabapentin by 50%, initiate about 50% of the equivalent dose of pregabalin for a few days, and then after that time frame, stop the gabapentin and increase the pregabalin. Um, you could also do a stop-start method. One of my biggest fears in life is when I'm switching between products is that they get stuck on both. So we could reduce the gabapentin in this patient to 300 milligrams twice a day and start pregabalin 50 twice a day um, for a week, and then at, after that time frame, increase the pregabalin up to 100 twice a day. Or if we want to do the stop-start method, we could just stop the gabapentin and initiate pregabalin 100 milligrams. But please keep in mind, this information is only applicable to gabapentin, neurontin, and pregabalin or Lyrica. Overall, with all of these medications, it's important that they might not be abruptly discontinued. Usually taper them over a one-week period. So this is kind of our segue into moving into talking a little bit more about gabapentinoid abuse. And I alluded this to this a little bit before, but there is some evidence for gabapentinoids in the treatment of um, addiction, more so with alcohol, um, but there is some evidence with benzodiazepine or opioid withdrawal or cocaine relapse with pregabalin. Interestingly, in the American Psychiatric Association Alcohol Use Disorder Guidelines, they suggest, which isn't um, as high as um, recommend, um, that you can use gabapentin in patients who have a goal of reducing or avoiding alcohol in patients who prefer to use that medication or failed the other preferred medications like naltrexone or acamprosate um, and they don't have any contraindications. But it is important to note that it doesn't have as great of evidence for alcohol use disorder in comparison to naltrexone, acamprosate, or even topiramate. So, interesting. So now let's talk about gabapentinoid abuse. So just keep in mind that there is a difference between misuse and abuse, and I will do my best to make sure that I use the terminology correctly. But misuse is taking a legal prescription for a purpose other than the reason it was given to you, or taking a drug not prescribed to you. Whereas abuse is taking a legal prescription for a purpose other than the reason it was prescribed, 
taking a drug not prescribed to you and taking a drug or substance to get a pleasant or euphoric feeling. So to meet the definition, here's the DSM substance use disorder criteria. I'm sure you're fairly familiar with that, but they have to have two or more of these criteria within a 12-month period. So let's introduce Ms. Smith, a 67-year-old female with um, past medical history for mood disorder, alcohol abuse, and polyneuritis. She is currently prescribed naproxen, amitriptyline 100 milligrams, and gabapentin, which is interestingly at 4,800 milligrams a day, typically beyond our maximum dose of 3,600 milligrams a day. She began to exhibit fraudulent behavior, trying to get medication without a prescription, exaggerating her symptoms, um, and changing providers when her demands for more gabapentin were not met. Ultimately, she ran out of medication and could not get a refill. So we will find out later what happens to Ms. Smith. So there are some startling statistics. As I've already mentioned, um, uh, there's been a rise in, in the reports of gabapentinoid abuse. There's, in the European Medicines Agency, reports there peaked uh, maybe in 2013, um, but quite a few increased reports of gabapentinoid abuse. A total of about 4,000 reports related to gabapentin between 2004 and 2015. And this is probably the common theme, and if I could earn a dollar for every time I say this during the presentation, I'll probably end up um, being able to buy maybe one drink <laughs> in Vegas. But users of gabapentin are more likely to abuse oxycodone, buprenorphine, and benzodiazepines compared to non-users. So that's kind of one of the key takeaway messages of this presentation is that people who abuse gabapentin are more likely to be abusing other substances. There was a time frame where potentially females were thought to be more likely to abuse gabapentin in comparison to males, um, but now data is looking that that's more equal. Age kind of varies. Um, in this specific study, the case report average age was 41 years of age, varying from 21 to 43. And you can see that there are reports from all over the world. Um, US at the top, though. Go USA. There was a study done of random urine drug screen samples in about 120 patients treated for opioid dependence who were on medication-assisted therapy. And what they found was that 12% of urine samples had pregabalin in them. And 11 of these 15 patients admitted to buying pregabalin um, from illicit sources. In Germany, um, they found that in regards to pregabalin abuse, that from 55 reports, that the mean dose was about 1,400 milligrams a day. And keep in mind, the typical maximum is 600 milligrams per day with the mean age of 36. And here in this, this study, a majority of the patients were male. And then in the prison system, I believe this was done in Florida, they looked and searched inmate lockers and found that um, about 100 patient, or 100 prisoners had a gabapentinoid in their locker, and only about 20 of them were actually prescribed gabapentin, um, and they were diverting the gabapentin for a high. Is this where we switch? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. So, as, as uh, Courtney's kind of already mentioned, you're, when you think gabapentinoid abuse, you're not thinking your typical chronic pain patient. You're probably thinking somebody with a history of substance use disorder or active substance use disorder, especially opioid use disorder, most likely. Um, so the prevalence of seeing a gabapentinoid abuse in the general patient population is about 1.1% of patients. This is, these are estimates from the United Kingdom. Whereas if you're looking at the prevalence in opioid abuse populations, it's much, much higher. So 15 to 22% for gabapentin misuse, and then 40 to 65% abuse of gabapentin with a prescription. And again, patients with a history of substance use disorder with opioid use disorder being most common. So this was another study looking at insurance claims and the potential for gabapentin um, or pregabalin abuse or misuse. Now, this, this study and further slides that I'm going to review talk really hone in on like the polypharmacy issue. So kind of like the theme with opioid overdoses, especially as it relates to prescription opioid medications, is typically in the presence of other CNS depressant medications. So this study was looking at patients who had more than two pharmacy claims for alprazolam, gabapentin, pregabalin, zolpidem, or any opioid medication excluding patch formulations or fentanyl products. So they defined abuse as more than three or more claims exceeding the daily dose threshold, uh, which was 3,600 milligrams per day for gabapentin and 600 milligrams per day for pregabalin, over three or more rolling quarters where the dispense supply exceeded this threshold. So they found that individually, 3.2% and 4.9% of patients respectively were potentially abusing gabapentin or pregabalin alone, but then the percentage was much higher in those patients who were co-prescribed in opioids. So 24% of the gabapentin patients on opioids and 28% of the pregabalin patients on opioids. Now, I take this kind of with a grain of salt, too, because we all use dashboards and, and um, claims data or refill histories to kind of make reports or Excel spreadsheets, but we know that there are limitations here, right? So sometimes a patient got a refill because of whatever circumstance, but that's going to kind of count against them in this because of the time frame. So I would kind of keep that in mind as well. It's not a perfect system. Now, we've talked about the mechanism of action for pregabalin and gabapentin in terms of pain, but how, how does it work in terms of misuse or abuse? The answer is we really don't know or it's, it's a little bit unclear. But it probably, again, is related to neurotransmitters like glutamate, noradrenaline, serotonin, and dopamine. The GABA analogs can induce addictive behaviors in the same manner as benzodiazepines. In fact, pregabalin has a control, is labeled as a, a C5, a controlled substance. So it's found to have, and it's thought to be because it has a six-fold higher binding affinity for the alpha-2 delta subunit, a quicker absorption rate, and a greater bioavailability. And I'm going to go through some patient, if you've ever heard of the website bluelight.org, um, there's quite some interesting information on there. So some patients, I feel like, have actually kind of figured this out in terms of pregabalin versus gabapentin, and you'll kind of see that in their self-reports of abusing it. Oh. Oh. So this was, Okay. So I've been to a few meetings, and there's actually been um, psychiatrists who run or work, on, work in um, substance use treatment centers. And it's actually quite startling the, the number of admissions or patients that are getting sent to treatment centers for the misuse or abuse of gabapentin. So in a, just a quick search, I live in South Florida. Yes, 
We had a pill mill problem, yes, I know. But if you do just a quick search, at least in South Florida where I live, this is what comes up. So they are advertising and targeting patients potentially for gabapentinoid abuse. Um, there's, been, there's been media attention. The street name in the United States is, is um, typically the word Johnny's or Budweiser's is in the United Kingdom usually. So just something to think about. This is information that's being you know, broadcast in the media. It's also now being advertised to patients potentially in this patient population. Um, and and it's, being, it's being a reason for patients to be admitted to treatment as well. Now, if you look at the pregabalin package insert, the reason why it got a C5 status is because it looked at a small patient population of recreational users of sedative hypnotic drugs. Pregabalin was administered as a 450 milligram single dose. Now again, we don't typically dose pregabalin in a single dose in that high, high of a dose, but these patients reported a good drug effect, a high, or a liking. The above effects were similar to that reported with a 30 milligram single dose of diazepam. In controlled trials of more than 5,500 patients, they found that 4% of patients treated with pregabalin reported euphoria as an ADR, and reported rates ranged from 1% to 12%. Now, I mean, I do have a handful of patients who cannot tolerate gabapentin and or pregabalin because of the kind of mental cloudiness or fogging that they experience, the sedation, things like that. But if your patient's not truly looking for true chronic pain relief, that may be something they may not report to you because that's actually something that they're looking to feel or experience. Now, there have been changes to the gabapentin package insert because of what type of data has come out. So there are reports of small number of post-marketing with abuse and misuse, patients taking higher than the recommended doses, using it for unapproved uses or to treat actual withdrawal. So that's really where the opioid use disorder patient population comes into play. These patients are taking a gabapentinoid to treat or self-treat their opioid withdrawal symptoms. Patients with a history of polysubstance abuse, so you always want, they recommend assessing the history of drug abuse and then monitoring for the signs and symptoms of gabapentin misuse or abuse, which we'll go over towards the end of this presentation. Now, where we keep talking about misuse and abuse, what doses are patients um, doing this at? So typically it's the oral route, but we'll talk about routes of administration in a minute, but it can be in a variety of doses. So it could be at a therapeutic range, so they don't have a prescription, but they're taking it anyway. Could be at much higher doses than are recommended or prescribed, three to 20 times the clinical used amounts, or they could take the entire day's prescribed dose in one large dose, right? Intolerance can develop, leading to the need for an increased dose to get the same response. Now, how often are these patients abusing or misusing these medications? In the general population, typically once a week to once a month is the most common, versus the opioid abuse population, look at that, 25 of the last 30 days. So we're talking almost every day. I mean, especially in someone who's trying to self-treat their withdrawal, that kind of makes sense. You want to avoid those uncomfortable feelings. Now, not, not unlike the opioid um, epidemic or the opioid prescription problem that some people, however you want to label it, whether it's illicit or prescription medications, um, the prescription sources for gabapentin and pregabalin typically come from a healthcare provider falling not far from behind as family members or acquaintances. So again, people may think that 
sharing these medications or doing a friend or a family member good because they're trying to help them, but in reality they could be doing more harm, especially as Courtney mentioned now that we're concerned about the potential for increased risk of overdose combining gabapentinoids with an opioid. So it's important that they learn to take their medications exactly as prescribed and only for themselves, especially because pregabalin is a controlled substance. All right, so let's talk about cost or street value. So gabapentin on the street, as I mentioned, um, Budweiser's in the UK or Gabby's, they cost about one pound per 300 milligrams, which is equivalent to about $1.65 for 300 milligrams. In Appalachian, Kentucky, the street cost of gabapentin was reported to be about less than a dollar a pill. And then again, the street name in the United States is Johnny's. So that's quite cheap compared to, you know, an opioid medication. But the cost could range anywhere from $1 to $7 per pill, depending on the strength. So, again, polypharmacy comes into play when you're talking about what do these patients combine gabapentinoids with in order to abuse them or get the euphoric type feelings that they're looking for. It can be a range of prescription or illicit substances. So anything from alcohol to cannabis to SSRIs, LSD, opioids, benzodiazepines, um, salvia, heroin, amphetamines, or synthetic cathinones. So perhaps maybe we should be doing urine drug testing in patients prescribed gabapentinoids, even if that's the only substance that they're taking, or maybe specifically if it's a gabapentinoid in a patient with an opioid use disorder or a substance use disorder history. Now, why have these drugs become such popular medications for misuse and abuse? They're widely available. They're used for off-label um, uses. Gabapentin is relatively cheap. It's typically easy to get a prescription because gabapentin is not even a controlled substance. Lyrica is, but it's a C5, so that's less of a concern for most providers. As Courtney mentioned, you know we're, we're working so hard to reduce patients on high opioid doses to low opioid doses, and can be, gabapentinoids can be quite helpful in that process. I mean, I'll be honest. Gabapentinoids are one of my favorite classes of medications, and now I'm almost kind of having to rethink. Every time I go to use this medication or recommend the use of a medication, this medication, looking at the patient's history a little bit more closely, or what other CNS depressants are they already prescribed? Are they really appropriate to use this class of drugs? So reasons why people misuse or abuse these meds, recreational use, they're looking to improve their mood or anxiety potentiating the effects of drug abuse treatment, intentional self-harm, to reduce pain, as I mentioned already, reduce cravings or withdrawal from other substances, substitution for other drugs that they no longer have access to, and just overall addiction. Okay, so now let's talk about how these medications are abused. I'm not sure if anybody here knows what parachuting is. But parachuting involves actually crushing the tablet or opening the capsule so that the, the powder is available. And you put it into a little piece of like tissue paper or toilet paper, you roll it up, and then the patient actually swallows it. And by doing that, it hits the bloodstream much faster than if you were to just take it by mouth, right? Other ways to abuse or misuse gabapentin and pregabalin are listed here. Again, orally is most common. However, there have been uh, reports of IV use, snorting. Now, there was something I read that talks about how gabapentin can be, um, can be uncomfortable in the nose when you're snorting it, so something to consider. Um, intramuscular use, can't both have been found to be used as cutting agents in street heroin. 
smoking it rectally, which would be plugging, or parachuting like I mentioned. So these patients can be quite creative, something else to keep in mind. And what are the patient's effects when they abuse or misuse the medication? So this is listed here, but I kind of want to go on to some of these reports that I talked about. From, this is from a, an article, but then there, we have some stuff from bluelight.org as well. The pregabalin erases my benzo opiate withdrawal and cravings. In my opinion, anything over 900 milligrams is a waste to sedating. The only downside to gabapentin, so far as I can tell, is the onset. These little guys take upwards of an hour to really start to kick in, but luckily they last for 48, four to eight hours, it seems. I feel as if I'm on a super amphetamine rush and can tackle anything, yet feel so content, it's like I'm on a fully sedated opiate buzz. Pregabalin outshines gabapentin. Far less dosage to achieve the same recreational high, also not as strong as a half-life, allowing one to use the drug more frequently. So that's the person, I think, that kind of figured out the pharmacokinetics of pregabalin compared to gabapentin. And interestingly, the United Kingdom has actually come up with guidelines for the management of gabapentinoid misuse because it's become such a prevalent problem there. So these are um, some effects found in their guidelines in terms of the effects of, of pregabalin misuse specifically at different doses. So I'll just bring your attention to the 1,200 milligrams drowsiness, euphoria, empathetic feelings, similar to ecstasy, versus more than 1,500 milligrams to 5 grams, uncontrollable drowsiness, frequent hallucinations, great euphoria, frequent associative events, similar to dextromethorphan, behavioral inhibition, and anxiety. So again, probably most often a patient who's truly misusing or abusing the medications and be taking it at super therapeutic doses. So as you can imagine, one of the things you're going to want to look for is early re requests for early refills. Now, what happens in someone if they were to overdose on a gabapentinoid? The onset can occur soon after ingestion, could last for 10 hours or longer, the effects are typically mild to moderate, and fatalities or intubation are, are rare. Now, that's not the case necessarily if they're combining it with other drugs of abuse or substances, but just using these medications alone, the common effects of an overdose are hypotension, tachycardia, and CNS effects. And there have been survival reports with patients using up to 11,500 milligrams of pregabalin and 91,000 milligrams of gabapentin. But however, I think if you're talking about combining it with opioids or other CNS depressants or illicit drugs, that's probably, you're probably not going to get to that high of a dose. In someone who has renal dysfunction, you're going to be more concerned for having more severe events, especially at lower doses because the drugs aren't being cleared properly. As I mentioned already, fatalities are more common when ingested with other substances. 90% of the fatalities are associated with opioids. Um, now, withdrawal. As Courtney said, you don't want to stop these medications cold turkey. Um, you want to make sure that you taper them slowly and gradually for the sake of the patient. So, but if someone were to run out early or they didn't have access to their source of gabapentin or pregabalin, what would happen? Withdrawal can um, start within 12 hours to 7 days after they stop use. Majority of cases report onset between 24 and 48 hours. Believe it or not, there's even been at least one reported case of a newborn baby experiencing withdrawal due to a mother's gabapentin use while pregnant. 
What are the typical signs or symptoms of gabapentin or pregabalin withdrawal? Not um, unlike opiate withdrawal, I would say, right? So psychomotor agitation, confusion, craving, disorientation, hypertension, tachycardia, tremor, insomnia, nausea, headache, diarrhea, diaphoresis, and convulsion. So you may actually have to ask the patient specific questions to really you know, figure out what type of withdrawal are they experiencing, gabapentinoid versus opioid versus some other type of withdrawal. How do you treat the withdrawal? So now this is interesting. A lot of the different treatments or drugs that are used in other types of, opi of withdrawal symptoms have been found to really not be that effective for the treatment of gabapentin or pregabalin withdrawal. What is effective? Pregabalin and gabapentin, obviously. So this can be, this can be quite challenging to treat, and I guess really, you're really going to have to look at like supportive care. So as I mentioned, um, Public Health England, or PHE, they came out with some specific guidelines for how to handle gabapentinoid misuse. They recommend a collaborative and conservative approach. So they are saying that if the prescriber decides to prescribe above the maximum dose, of a product to help a patient who's currently misusing or abusing it to lower them down to therapeutic doses or taper them off the product altogether. This should be for a short period of time that they're prescribing the super therapeutic dose with an aim to reduce the patient to below the licensed maximum dose in a short period of time and within the guidance provided by PHE. So they actually give specific doses, a maximum reduction rate for, for pregabalin of 50 to 100 milligrams per week and a maximum reduction of gabapentin is 300 milligrams every four days. So I thought that was pretty cool. Something for us to kind of have in our back pocket to use. So now let's go back to our patient case, Ms. Smith. <coughs> Excuse me. So it turns out she was actually taking at least 7,200 milligrams of gabapentin. When she ran out, she developed withdrawal symptoms and was hospitalized. When she was discharged, gabapentin was stopped. Three months later, gabapentin was re-prescribed. She found another doctor. And about five months after discharge, she had resumed gabapentin abuse in combination with diazepam. So remember, gabapentin is not typically reported on the PDMP. So it's not like you as a prescriber would typically be able to know that she has a history of this or history of doctor shopping by checking the PDMP it would be based on her self-report. So what would we recommend if she were to come back and seek treatment, right? So we recommend tapering her off of the gabapentin, make sure she gets a behavioral health or substance abuse referral, taper her off her benzodiazepine, and make sure she has an naloxone kit if she admits to opioid misuse or abuse, or it's suspected. So let's talk about how some states are combating this current problem or issue. Pregabalin is already a, a C5 substance, as I mentioned, so it's already reported to the database in some states. Some states do not require the reporting of a C5 medication, but some, some either require it or it's reported by some pharmacies already. However, some states have actually moved to add gabapentin reporting to their PDMP. So those states are listed here, and I'll draw your attention to the fact that Kentucky also um, a state that really has struggled with the opioid epidemic, they've actually listed gabapentin as a C5 substance as of this time. So they're really trying to hone in on this problem as well. So if you're suspicious of someone misusing or abusing their gabapentinoid, what signs or symptoms are you looking for? 
requesting specific meds, although I use this one with caution because we always say if someone had high blood pressure and they came in and they said, well, hydrochlorothiazide works well for me, we wouldn't really question it. Versus if someone come in, comes in and says, I've used gabapentin before, it works great, I don't know that we should really pigeonhole them into this category for, with that sign or symptom alone. Requesting higher doses, doctor shopping, claims of lost or stolen medications, using multiple pharmacies, early refill requests, or a negative urine drug monitoring screen. So gabapentin or pregabalin are not typically included on, an immu on your typical immunoassay in office, but perhaps that's something you want to consider adding to your basic panel if you're interested in monitoring compliance with use of these drugs. Signs of potential misuse of gabapentinoids. So this is from that um, article in the United Kingdom. Patients presenting as intoxicated, impaired, or disheveled, especially if it's a change from their normal presentation. So I haven't personally had a patient in my, in my treatment practice where I've actually suspected gabapentin or pregabalin misuse or abuse. However, there have been two cases um, where I work that, where one patient comes in all the time requesting gabapentin early. And it's actually the outpatient pharmacy who's kind of caught on to this trend. So they've limited, limited his supply to 30 days at a time. And anytime he comes in with a new story, requesting an early refill, they let the prescriber know. And it's, I mean, it's up to the prescriber, but the pharmacy is definitely uncomfortable with how often this patient comes in requesting early refills. The other case recently that um, I was involved in was a case review or a patient chart review. And the patient was being treated for substance use disorder, and they noticed that in substance use disorder um, clinic or treat his outpatient treatment setting, he was actually falling asleep and quite sedated, which was a change in his typical presentation. So they said, well, geez, you guys just increased his gabapentin. Maybe it's related to that. So then we said, okay, well, we'll we recommend lowering his dose gradually and see what happens. But then as part of his substance use treatment, they were actually counting his gabapentin tablets, and he was running short. So that to me means he was probably maybe misusing or abusing it or potentially selling it or doing something else with it that wasn't technically, you know, kosher. So um, those are the two kind of cases that I've kind of experienced firsthand because, like I said, it's hard because this is such a drug that's in, like, my, my arsenal that I use all the time, but I'm definitely being more cognizant or thinking more carefully every time I go to use or recommend it. Other signs of potential misuse of gabapentinoids, loss of interest in alternative hobbies or activities, early requests for prescriptions, lost prescriptions, unauthorized dose increases, concurrent misuse of illicit drugs, obtaining the medication from other sources, withdrawal symptoms, no interest in the diagnosis for which gabapentinoid is being used, including referral, refusal for additional workup. That's kind of interesting. Worsening of their mental health presentation, aggressive complaining, or prescription forgery. So kind of taking all of that back with you um, to your practice sites, just in summary, gabapentin and pregabalin misuse and abuse can occur. It's more common in patients with a history of substance use disorder. Co-ingestants are often involved. Patients can experience withdrawal if these medications are abruptly stopped. And you, depending on what state you live in, you can start to use the PDMP to kind of look at compliance or adherence with filling and using these medications. So four things you should do for Monday. Assess a patient's substance abuse history, which hopefully we're doing anyway. Your psychiatric history, again, hopefully we're doing that anyway. And concomitant medications before prescribing. 
Be aware of the higher risk groups, so take a good social history. Monitor for early refills or consider limiting the quantity supply to 30 days, for example, and check your state PDMP. So now we did have some assessment questions and then we'll have a few minutes for questions. Um, but then the, the next presentation starts shortly after this, so if we have to move outside to answer questions, we will. The proposed mechanism of action for gabapentin and pregabalin include A, binding to GABA receptors, B, increasing glutamate, norepinephrine, and substance P, C, binding to the alpha-2 delta subunit of the voltage-gated calcium channel, or D, inhibiting serotonin reuptake. So just a shout-out from the audience, A, B, C. Woohoo! we're awake. Factors that have contributed to the abuse of gabapentin include all of the following except which? Hi. A. <laughs> Fabulous. You guys all get gold stars. <laughs> Signs of gabapentin and pregabalin withdrawal include all of the following except which? That one wasn't as clear. What? B. Excellent. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time and attention. Safe travels to everybody going back home. So like I said, we have maybe three or five minutes for questions, and if we have to move out of the room, we will to finish up before the next session. Yes? So the question is, if somebody was pregnant, would you recommend weaning them off of gabapentin? Yes. So I would say, um, you know, we don't. I don't encounter pregnant patients too often where I work, but we have had um, a pregnant patient, and we've specifically avoided the use of gabapentin or recommended that they not be prescribed it. Yeah. Yeah. I had a similar case. Um, the patient was on gabapentin, and we weren't sure if she was pregnant or not. So I recommended to taper off once we knew if she was pregnant. I can't remember, so the question is, even if the pregnant patient's taking a relatively low dose, like 300, three times a day, I can't remember which pregnancy class gabapentin is, it, is in off the top of my head. I think it's a C. That's what I think, too. But there's still the potential risk. I mean, you'd have to really weigh the risk versus the benefits, or I would feel more comfortable consulting with their uh, OB-GYN or, like, a fetal medicine specialist. Yes. So are you talking, she's asking about different recommendations to taper someone's gabapentinoid. Are you asking in the abuse setting or in the therapeutic setting to avoid withdrawal? So if you're using it and you're not suspecting any sort of abuse, higher doses. So the, the packaging says over a week, but I often do longer than that, a couple weeks. I, I sometimes, if you're, if depending on why the reason is that you're tapering. So if the patient's having an ADR and they can't talk, they can't tolerate being on it, then obviously you're going to taper a little bit faster. But if it's because the patient's not really having any therapeutic benefit, I taper kind of the same way I would have titrated their dose, personally speaking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of any abuse reported with release or Horizon? So I was um, reviewing the Horizon package insert this morning, and they do have a statement about misuse and abuse. Horizon does. But what about I did not review that specific. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. If you use gabapentin in conjunction with oxycodone for... Are there guidelines for... Right, the highest dose of get is 3,600 milligrams per day, correct, in a divided dose. Oh, no, I still, if the patient's appropriate and they're not having side effects, I do still titrate to 3,600 milligrams before considering changing therapy for gabapentin, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, good, thank you. Oh, it is? Okay, good to know. Thank you. Yes. Yes, the question is, are the v is the VA now required to check the E-Force or PDMP? So the National VHA Directive requires a PDMP check to be done once per year. However, if the VA is located in a state with stricter guidelines or laws, then that VA may follow the state-specific law. I practice in Florida. Our facility is checking it I don't more have often a than once a year. We are. I can't speak for the West Coast. VAs because I practice on the East Coast, yeah. but we do we are checking it more often, especially. You probably should take the remainder law. of questions.